Hello and welcome to Essential Descent. I'm Wilton Vaught, producer and host of the series. This is the first of two episodes consisting of audio from a webinar entitled No to the New Cold War. The organizers described the webinar as an international meeting in opposition to the U.S.-led New Cold War on China. You can find their website at nocoldwar.org. We start with moderator Jenny Clegg. Welcome, everyone, to this clearly incredibly important and timely online event to oppose the dangerous U.S. build-up to a new Cold War on China. The event marks the launch of the statement, a new Cold War against China is against the interests of humanity, which forms the basis for today's discussion. It's a call for all those opposed to this ominous turn in world affairs to come together and organise. Today's meeting is a truly global gathering. We're delighted to have registrations from 49 countries and the statement has now been translated into 16 languages so far. So I'm Jenny Clegg and I'm the author of a book entitled China's Global Strategy Towards a Multipolar World. I'm also active in the peace and anti-war movement in Britain and I will be chairing the proceedings. Before I go on, I'd like to bring in the convener of the event, Carlos Martinez, to explain how this meeting came about. My name is Carlos Martinez. I'm a writer and activist based in London and I'm one of the event organisers and I just wanted to take a couple of minutes to introduce the meeting and explain how it came about and why it's taking place. So the idea to have an event around the new Cold War came from informal discussions I was having with a few contacts. And I'll I'll mention those people now since they're the ones who've done the hard work of organizing the meeting. That's uh, Ajit Singh, Danny Haifong, Chiao Collective, Fiona Edwards and John Ross. And we decided to put together a small organizing group with a view to planning an event and launching a campaign because the issue of the new Cold War is becoming seemingly more important by the day, particularly this year. The US and its allies have been seriously escalating their anti-China rhetoric around the pandemic, around trade issues, around Hong Kong, around Xinjiang. And along with the rhetoric comes sanctions, diplomatic pressure, and a ramped up military threat. We seem to have reached a situation in which the sort of Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld project for a new American century has moved from, if you like, the neoconservative fringes to taking center stage. It's become a consensus position. This is a unilateralist strategy that aims to cement US dominance and ultimately to prevent the emergence of a more democratic, a more equal, a more multipolar world. And for those people around the world, which I think is the large majority, that desire peace, that desire progress, that desire cooperation to tackle the major problems faced by humanity, this new Cold War constitutes a very dangerous and a very worrying situation. And that's why we chose to organize on an international basis, because this is an issue that affects all of humanity and has implications for the future of the planet. It was particularly important for us to incorporate Chinese progressive opinion, which unfortunately is something that's rarely heard in the West, and to help build a conversation with voices from around the world, including the US peace movement, the British peace movement, the Latin American left, and elsewhere. And I'm really glad that we've been able to put together such an international platform with speakers from China, the US, Britain, India, Venezuela, Russia, and Canada. This issue isn't going to go away anytime soon. There's a lot of work to do. So please, I hope that everyone will keep in touch 
and let's try to consolidate our forces globally against the insanity of a new Cold War. And with that introduction, I will hand you back to Jenny Clegg. Thanks very much, Carlos. Before I start introducing the panel speakers, I'll just have a few words of introduction myself. Thinking about the current developments, I recall an article that was published in 2003 by an anti-war journalist in the leading newspaper, which had the headline, Iraq, Iran, then China next, question mark. It seems that the moment of China next has now arrived. Just as the COVID virus began to spread, making so starkly clear the urgency for governments to cooperate against the pandemic, U.S.-China relations deteriorated sharply. With Trump's racialized rhetoric casting China as the villain, what had started as differences over trade became elevated into the realm of ideology. Now, differences over trade can be negotiated over and resolved. But once China is called a liar, once China is racially abused, what is there to talk about? Reinforced by an incessant flow of negative media coverage, the China threat is portrayed now in existential terms as a threat to the very values of world civilization embodied by the West. It is now that we start to enter the terrain of a new Cold War. This is no mere war of words. There's been a serious military build-up by the US to contain China. And this has been ramped up even further as the deadly virus was devastating the US population with full force, diverting yet more funds from health into the military. An astonishingly callous disregard for human life, compounding Trump's appalling misgovernment of the COVID crisis in a bid precisely to claim the US as the best power in the world to govern. Events, particularly over the last couple of weeks, have become increasingly worrisome, and it looks as, in many ways as if a new Cold War may be starting to solidify. The US has passed new acts to cover Xinjiang and Hong Kong, existing alongside Tibet and Taiwan acts, gestures that threaten Chinese sovereignty and some kind of imitation of the calls by imperialist powers over a century ago to dismember China. On July the 13th, Mike Pompeo made a statement strengthening U.S. policy in the South China Sea, seemingly to lay out the legal foundations of war with China. And now we have the further provocation of the illegal closure of the Chinese consulate in Houston. Where will this stop? Trump has also intensified the drive to force other countries to choose sides, using Huawei as the lever. 5G is now apparently to divide the world between freedom and democracy on the one hand and China's so-called bullying and coercion on the other. And of course, I can't resist mentioning here how Mike Pompeo was in the UK last week calling for US-UK unity against China's bullying, having, of course, just bullied the US government into stripping Huawei from its networks. World-threatening crises are converging. Pandemic. Yet another economic recession and looming ever closer the catastrophe of climate change. People are waking up to the fact now that the US-China relationship is the most important relationship now shaping the world. The increasing aggression against China poses the most serious threat to world peace. And as such, it is a massive obstacle in the way of humanity successfully dealing with these crucial common issues that we're facing. So why have US-China relations taken such a nosedive? How might the new Cold War develop in the coming months unfolding into the future? And above all, what is to be done? How can we, the people, shape the future? 
We had before us, as Carlos said, a panel of internationally renowned speakers from across the world, a multipolarity, you might say, of scholars and academics, political analysts and activists, and in most cases, all of these, who will bring a great wealth and diversity of knowledge and experience to bear to get to grips with the unprecedented challenges before us. To start us off, we have Professor John Ross, who we must all thank for getting this initiative off the ground. John is an economist, a senior fellow at the Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies, Renmin University in China. He's internationally known for seminal work on economic reforms in the former Soviet Union and China, and he blogs on learning from China. And his pieces on the Chinese economy uh, are a must-read and are written not only for economists, but are accessible to non-economists as well. So, John, please start us off. Firstly, Jenny slightly elevated me. I'm um, currently senior fellow, not professor. Okay, I want to be clear. What is the nature of this statement? It's an anti-Cold War statement. It's not a pro-China statement. The new Cold War is a threat to humanity. I know here some signatories support China's policies and methods of development. Other signatories may oppose parts of China's development or even all of it. I don't know the views of all the speakers and signatories. But what unites them is that they all agree a new Cold War will be against the interests of humanity. It will take humanity backwards. I would like to give examples by looking at five of the urgent issues which face the whole of humanity. In this, I believe, particularly important is the dialogue of speakers from the US and China, because as Carlos said, there's not nearly enough dialogue which takes place on, on that basis. Okay. What is a new Cold War? It's not only about the US and China. It's an attempt by the present US administration to impose its policies on the world and to force other countries to follow these. What would be the consequences of success in this for the EU administration? What would they be the consequences for the whole of humanity? First, let's take with the COVID-19. The pandemic is completely out of control in the United States and rising internationally. When the US applied some lockdown measures as followed by other countries, there was a decline in the number of cases. These are now rising vertiginously. Look at also at the situation in Brazil, the country which follows the same policies. This would be a disaster for humanity. Literally millions of people would die if this policy were imposed. Second, the threat of war. The US in the last decades has launched major wars, most openly Iraq and Libya. But these wars brought disaster not only for these countries, but to entire regions. Destabilization in the Middle East and parts of Africa, rise of terrorist organizations operating internationally. The US administration has also taken dangerous steps, such as withdrawal from the INF <laughs> and imposed unilateral sanctions. Of course, the threat of war with China itself would be an unimaginable catastrophe. Climate change. The US is the only country to formally withdraw from the Paris Climate Change Accords, but don't have any illusions. It's putting on huge pressure onto countries such as Brazil and Saudi Arabia, which remain formally signatories, in order to undermine the Paris Accords. This poses a catastrophe, the threat of a catastrophe for the planet and humanity. The issue of racism. Most of the world has been inspired, of course, by the huge protests in the United States since the racist killing of George Floyd and by the Black Lives Matter movement. But this is directly related to this threat of a new Cold War, because what has happened is that the US people have recognised it by these actions, clearly, 
that their main problems were made in the United States, not in other countries. What the US administration wants to do is try to persuade people in all countries, including, for example, my own, that the problems are not made by people in their country, they're made by some other country. I remember it still because I'm old enough to be involved at the time in the movement against the Vietnam War, Muhammad Ali's inspiring words, I ain't got no quarrel with, with them Viet Cong. They never lynched you, never called you N-words, never put dogs on you, never shot your leaders. Anti-Muslim rhetoric and actions are also a very serious threat. And we see in several countries the clear evidence that Chinese people would be added to the list of black people and Muslims in the list of racist targets. In short, a new Cold War would see a huge wave of international racism. Economic development and poverty reduction. Overcoming world poverty remains the decisive issue for humanity. We should never forget that 84% of the world's population lives in developing countries. This is literally a life or death question. The life expectancy in a low-income economy is 17 years less than in the high-income economy. China's raised over 860 million people out of World Bank to find poverty. Over 70% of all those lifted out of poverty in the world. But what is the US attempting to do now? I put down a graph which is the projections for the share of contributions to world growth by the IMF in the next two years. China, 51%, India, 19%. The US is 3.3%. So what the US Cold War is attempting to do is to reorientate all countries in the world away from the most rapidly growing parts of the world economy and towards its relatively stagnant own economy. This would have very serious consequences for increases in world poverty and stopping economic development. So, to summarise, the threat of a new Cold War is not just about the United States and China, although, of course, they are the main actors in this. It's a threat to the whole of humanity. And what is the alternative to do it, which, which is to jointly work together to fight the pandemic, to oppose war, to fight climate change, to oppose every form of racism, to work together for peaceful economic development, Therefore, I believe that for the interest of humanity, there should be a simple slogan, no Cold War. And there has to be real international work around that. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks so much for that, John. Uh, very clear and comprehensive rationale behind the statement and very informative too. So thanks a lot there. You're listening to Essential Dissent. This is the first of two episodes consisting of audio from a webinar entitled No to the New Cold War. We've so far heard from webinar convener Carlos Martinez, moderator Jenny Clegg, and economist John Ross. Now back to Jenny Clegg, who will introduce the next speaker. Our next speaker is from an American peace organization that since the Iraq war has gained much respect, not only within the United States, but also across the world. Code Pink is a women-led grassroots organization working to end U.S. wars and militarism and to support peace and human rights initiatives. I'm delighted to introduce Medea Benjamin. Medea. Thank you so much for organizing this important meeting, and I look forward to having more of these. When it comes to China, I think there's certainly lots of great and important discussions we could and should have about problems in the Chinese society, lack of free speech, human rights issues, labor issues. 
But when I hear it coming from leaders in the U.S., whether they're from the Democratic or Republican side, it makes me quite angry because I know that they're doing it for ulterior motives. When you hear U.S. leaders decry the lack of free speech in China at a time when we have thugs from the military and the police department on our streets tear gassing and shooting rubber bullets at peaceful demonstrators, it's hard to take them seriously. When you hear the decrying of the treatment of the Uyghurs in China, it's hard to take it seriously from people in both parties who have been supporting the two-decade-now war on Muslims throughout the world. The U.S. involved in bombing seven Muslim countries and torturing Muslims at Abu Ghraib and throwing them into prisons in Guantanamo and contributing to starving Muslim children in Yemen by supplying the Saudis with the bombs, banning Muslims from entering the United States, laying the groundwork for an attack on Muslims throughout the U.S. and now turning that into an attack on Asians, particularly Chinese, Chinese students, Chinese researchers, Chinese scientists, closing down Confucian centers at various universities and having now literally thousands of FBI investigations against Chinese that harken back to the witch hunts against the Japanese in World War II. So these real discussions about shortcomings in Chinese societies are not going to come from leaders in the U.S. What is most ludicrous is to hear those U.S. leaders talking about a new Chinese aggression when the U.S. has over 800 military bases around the world, including surrounding China, when the U.S. has now in the South Chinese seas two giant aircraft carriers, six nuclear submarines, and let's remember that When it comes to nuclear weapons, the U.S. has 6,000 compared to China with 300. And the U.S. military exercise that are conducted every two years in the called the Rim of the Pacific off the waters of Hawaii, where the last time it involved over 20,000 U.S. military. My worry is that what we have been hearing about China will only be escalated because of the coronavirus and because the economic problems that are going to result from that, where China is going to be a lot quicker than the United States at recovering from those problems and will continue its initiative, like the Belt and Road Initiative that include over 100 countries, and the U.S. is going to try to stop that. It's not just an issue about economic competition, but we know that the U.S. military industrial complex is always looking for an enemy, And there has been a call now for years to pivot to Asia, meaning stop the U.S. focus on the Middle East, try to get the U.S. out of those 20-year wars. There's even calls now to withdraw military from some places inside of Europe, reposition them, but to focus on Asia. And we see this now in the U.S. military budget that is just being voted on right now. There was a defeat in an effort to cut down the U.S. military budget by 10 percent. And the people who voted against it were the vast majority of both of certainly Republicans, but also Democrats. And the call to pass this new seven hundred and forty billion dollar budget in the United States, saying we needed that to counter adversaries like China. There was a U.S. senator, not a particularly hawkish one, Mitt Romney who has said that 
we have to have this massive U.S. military budget to counter China's new aggression when we know that China's military budget of $178 billion now compared to the $740 billion in the United States is ridiculous. He also said, imagine the consequences when a nation that does not believe in human rights with only one party, when they have the overwhelming military force in the world, and that's where we are headed. And so the new U.S. military budget includes billions of dollars more for a, quote, defensive ring around Guam, for increased stockpiles of long-range weapons around the Pacific, and for an extra $20 billion to be spent in the coming years on new radar warning systems and cruise missiles, greater military exercises in the region, deployment of additional forces, and new intelligence sharing centers with our allies in the Pacific. And so I want to echo what John Ross has just said about the need for education in our countries. I'm very upset because in the United States, we see two-thirds of Americans have an unfavorable view of China. That's up 20% since Trump came to power. While we are calling for a pivot to peace, not a pivot to Asia, we have to recognize that massive education needs to be done in our own countries to explain that China is not our enemy, that the Chinese people are not our enemy, and that we do need to work together more than ever to solve the problem of coronavirus, to find new treatments, to find new vaccines, to deal with the crisis of the environment, to deal with the crisis in the Korean Peninsula that can only be solved with the help of China. So I look forward to more discussions like these and more ways that we can work together internationally to say to the people of the world, China is not our enemy. The Chinese people are not our enemy. We call for cooperation and peace with our Chinese brothers and sisters. Thank you. Thanks very much, Medea, for those very thoughtful comments and that information about the U.S. military build-up. Our next speaker, obviously, as people have mentioned, the Black Lives Matter has erupted in the midst of the COVID crisis, with demonstrations across America becoming probably the largest mass movement in U.S. history. Just as the rise of the developing world, of which China is a part, has put great pressure on the structural inequalities of the US-led world system, so Black Lives Matter has exposed the deep-rooted structural inequalities of racism on which the US itself has been built, just as it is fighting to justify its monopoly of world leadership. So here we have Margaret Kimberley, who's an editor and senior columnist with Black Agenda Report, which provides news and commentary and analysis from the black left. She's also an activist for peace and justice issues, and a member of the War Resisters League Speakers Bureau. Margaret. I want to thank this group for inviting me to participate in this very important meeting. I remember, I'm old enough to remember, when Nixon went to China when I was a kid. It was said at the time that only a cold warrior could have pulled it off. Now, nearly 50 years later, the Cold War has been resurrected with a vengeance and China has been declared an enemy of this government and Americans are being whipped into a frenzy of hatred and suspicion against this nation. Now, whenever we see a reference to China in the corporate media, we always see the word Communist Party attached. This silly redundancy is war propaganda, along with every other smear and slur. 
We're told that one million Uyghurs are imprisoned when there is quite literally no proof of any such thing. China is the country which first experienced the COVID-19 virus, was the first to vanquish it, and has a low death rate of less than 5,000 people to prove it. We depend here in America on China to produce masks and other protective equipment, but China is declared the villain. The country that within one month of realizing there was a new communicable disease gave the world the keys to conquering it. Instead, the country which fails where China succeeds in providing for the needs of its people and their health is an international pariah, with most of the world barring Americans from travel and turning us into a giant leper colony. Trump, who speaks of the Kung flu and the Wuhan virus, but it is China which conquered the disease that has killed 130,000 Americans and forced a quarantine which has caused economic devastation to millions of people here. But Americans get nothing but war propaganda. Trump and Joe Biden outdo one another, bragging about who will be tougher on China. This week, we saw the U.S. government violate international law again and close the Chinese consulate in Houston, Texas. But the U.S. isn't alone. Its lackeys and vassals, commonly known as allies, follow the lead of the gangster state into spewing what can only be called war propaganda. Just to the north of here, Canada's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau talks behind Trump's back but never steps out of line. When Washington ordered Canada to arrest Meng Wanzhou, the daughter of Huawei's founder, they did just that. The U.S. accused Huawei of violating U.S. sanctions by doing business with Iran. There's nothing in U.S. or Canadian law which permitted her arrest, but like a good little puppet, Canada did as it was told. China retaliated and arrested two Canadians who remain under detention. But Trudeau doubles down and refuses to release her. Propaganda succeeds. It's kind of like a music that one hears over and over again. We remember it whether we intend to or not. And threats to prevent members of the Chinese Communist Party, some 100 million people, from entering the United States may seem laughable. But the foolishness is serious and meant to get public buy-in for dangerous acts. That is why millions of people believe there are millions of Uyghurs in Chinese prisons. The charge is false, completely made up, like tales of WMD in Iraq, babies taken from incubators in Kuwait, Libyan soldiers popping Viagra pills, and Russians paying bounties to kill U.S. troops. But the damage is done with sheer repetition and media acting like government scribes. We can expect to see more incidents like the closing of the Houston consulate and the Chinese government will retaliate. It's frightening that otherwise sensible people can be turned into a mob, ready to believe what they're told and declare a country which has done them no harm as an enemy. But that's not accidental. The history isn't new. When the Chinese Revolution occurred in the late 1940s, there were arguments in America about who lost China, as if China were the property of the U.S. and not a sovereign state. But that is what results from white supremacy as it plays out in foreign policy. China's history with U Europe and the U.S. is not a happy one. The Delano family, for example, yes, FDR's grandparents, made a fortune trading opium. 
The British stole Hong Kong, and now 20 years after they left are acting like the good little lapdogs that they are and joined in using Hong Kong to destabilize China. Canada and the UK aren't alone. Australia has joined in the effort too, and even raided the home of a New South Wales Parliament legislator who had done nothing except advocate for better relations between the two countries. I have referred to four of the Five Eyes nations, the UK and its settler colonial offshoots, the US, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. And as the imperial project reaches a fever pitch, they all work ever more closely together. While US senators say the Chinese students should only be allowed to study Shakespeare and not science, yes, a senator really said that, and babble about communist party member, China forges its own way and, of course, incurs the wrath of the U.S. as it does. China and Iran have an agreement to give each other aid and oil, and that means that the U.S. tantrums over sanctions will cause suffering in the short term. But the targets will be the ones that may prosper. But that, of course, is why the aggression will continue. I think it's extremely important that those of us who call ourselves members of the left know where we ought to stand. We must always be in opposition to the U.S. NATO allied vassal state aggression against China and the rest of the world, too. We cannot be confused. Remember that when the U.S. speaks of human rights, you are hearing from the country that has more of its population incarcerated, some two million people, than any other country in the world. Military spending larger than that of the next 10 countries combined. It allows police to kill a thousand people every year. COVID-19 has killed thousands, impoverished more, and its profit-making healthcare system is proof of a lack of human rights. We have to call out war propaganda whenever we see it and hear it, and not allow ourselves to be drawn into bogus arguments. We cannot use the first person when thinking about government statements uh, regarding China or any other country. Our interests are not those of the rulers, and we must never forget that. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Margaret, for that powerful exposure of war propaganda and also for drawing our attention to the crucial role of the five eyes in all of this. You're listening to Essential Dissent. This is the first of two episodes consisting of audio from a webinar entitled No to the New Cold War. We just heard from Medea Benjamin, co-founder of the women-led peace group Code Pink, followed by Margaret Kimberly, editor and senior columnist with Black Agenda Report. Now back to moderator Jenny Clegg, who will introduce the next speaker. For many people around the world, China and the Chinese people are an unknown quantity, certainly in the West, where over the last century and a half, long years of indifference have been punctuated by flare-ups of mass hysteria over the so-called yellow peril. So above all, in the world today, we need to hear the voices from China. Uh, We're going to have two speakers from China today, and the first is Wang Wen, who's Executive Dean of the Chongyang (coughs) Institute of Financial Studies at Renmin University. He's leader of a top-ranked think tank and consultant for several government ministries in China and has written extensively on topics concerning international affairs. Thank you. Thank you for having me. As a Chinese scholar, I'm very uh, grateful for so many international uh, friends to join the No New Cold War Initiative. This is a very, very important event. 
actually uh, in the next three months before the U.S. election will be a high-risk period for China-U.S. relations. The Trump administration can do anything to win the election. So it is not ruled out that military conflict against China will be launched by the Trump administration. The Trump's China policy now is quite crazy. Trump now is likely to announce diplomatic break with China. One of Trump's election strategies is to constantly provoke China. If China strikes back, no one in the U.S. will pay attention to Trump's feeling in the fight against the pandemic. Trump can also pretend to be a strong political man who dare to fight against China to get more votes. Now, China maintain patience, so Trump keeps stimulating until China and the U.S. break off diplomatic relations and even a war. So if so, it will be a disaster to China-U.S. relations as well as mankind and the world. So I think this is an open political conspiracy. The Trump administration is a source of the disaster. But fortunately, China was not irritated as the Soviet Union was in 1947 by the Iron Curtain speech. China has no intention to respond to the U.S. with a new Cold War. China's state council and foreign minister Wang Yi uh, delivered a speech with a huge amount of information about the U.S. and China relations on July 9th. Wang Yi stressed that China-U.S. relations face the most civilian challenge since the establishment of diplomatic ties in 1979. His proposal was very pragmatic. First, to activate and open all the channels of dialogue. Second, to review and agree on the lists of interactions. Third, to focus and cooperate on the COVID-19 response. So contrary to the speech respectively delivered by the U.S. Vice President Michael Pence and a separate of stay Michael Pompeo. One is speech, neither lie about the U.S., none attacked the country. It did not convene any hard-line gesture to coerce the U.S. It was full of wisdom and thick recommendations for the healthy development of China-U.S. relations and resolutions for problems. The U.S. is pressing the accelerator to trash bilateral relations now. But China is putting the bricks on uh, with the hope of preventing China-U.S. relations from continuing to the planet. So obviously, the Trump administration's strategy to shape China as an enemy will not succeed. For example, on early July, my institute, Chongyang Institute for Financial Study, Lenmin University of China, completely questionnaire of 100 Chinese scholars. In that questionnaire, 62% of those pooled believe 
the U.S. is waging a new Cold War against China. But 82% hold the view that a new Cold War resembling the U.S.-Soviet Union Cold War is unlikely. Besides, 90% believe China is well prepared to help handle a new Cold War offensive launched by the U.S. So uh, in my opinion, the coronavirus is still uh, raging on. The peak of the pandemic has not yet to come. The pessimistic estimate is that as many as 70 million people may die, if not united, humanity, including U.S., will likely enter a dark age. So therefore, I agree some friends right now said Americans should know that China is not enemy. The virus is. And all the international friends should know we don't need a new Cold War. Thank you. Thank you, Wang Wen. How necessary it is for us to hear the views from China. Clearly, Trump is capable of anything, and it's vital that we know how China is proposing to respond. Our next speaker is Vijay Prashad, Executive Director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. Vijay is an Indian historian, journalist, commentator, and a Marxist intellectual. He's a very prolific author of 30 books and a key voice in progressive politics, commenting on the wider range of Asian affairs, which are so important as India emerges as a new geopolitical force amidst the new US-China Cold War scenario. Vijay. Thank you, Jenny. And thank you, Carlos, for inviting me. I'm going to talk about the Indo-Pacific command of the United States and the Quad countries, the threat not only to China, but the kind of corrosive politics around Asia and Eurasia. Since 2017, the United States government has released a few reports and fact sheets on its new Indo-Pacific strategy. It's impossible to analyze these texts and the speeches from US government officials because they are largely made of empty phrases. What does it mean to say that the Indo-Pacific strategy, for instance, is going to promote free, fair, and reciprocal trade? Each of these terms, free, fair, and reciprocal, would need elaboration. Their meaning should be defined. But over hundreds of pages, there is simply no explanation of what any of these phrases, such as this one, means. Buried in these meaningless words in the Indo-Pacific strategy is a much deeper, much darker agenda of the U.S. government to use three large Asian states, Australia, India, and Japan, they form the Quad, to isolate and roll back China. There is nothing else to it. The U.S. government has made it very clear that what it finds most objectionable is China's Belt and Road Initiative which has signed on about 100 countries across the world. The roots of the Belt and Road Initiative, which began in 2013, was to pivot China's reliance upon the markets of the West to other countries and to use China's massive surpluses to build infrastructure in key parts of Africa, Asia, and Latin America. By 2027, Morgan Stanley estimates, despite the coronavirus recession, 
China will spend about $1.3 trillion on this ambitious construction project. Even Saudi Arabia, a close ally of the United States, has made the Belt and Road Initiative one of the cornerstones of its Saudi Vision 2030 plan. While China has invested $68 billion to build China-Pakistan economic corridor that links to the Arabian Sea at the Gwadar port, Saudi Arabia has agreed to invest $10 billion in the port itself. The scale of Chinese investment and the participation of a range of countries with different political identities and commitments is staggering. Put this beside the Indo-Pacific Business Forum in July 2018, which was hosted by the US government. This was held not in Asia, but quite tellingly in Washington, DC. At this forum, the United States bragged that it has spent $2.9 billion through the Department of State and the USAID. It has lined up hundreds of millions of dollars more through its US Millennium Challenge Corporation and the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. If you add up all this money that the US intends to spend for economic projects, it is a fraction of a percent of the Chinese investments. There is simply no appetite in Washington. And this is whether you consider the Trump administration, before that the Obama administration, and possibly a Biden administration. There is no appetite across the board of mainstream American politics with, in the current case, this America first attitude to funnel more money towards investments in the region currently being built by the Belt and Road Initiative. It appears as if the US investments will come with military claims. Nepal is currently in an internal debate over whether it should accept $500 million from a Millennium Challenge Corporation grant. This has to do with building electric power lines. Will this money that comes from the US government, will this money mean that the Nepali government would have to allow US troops into the country and allow the United States to build bases in Nepal? This would be objectionable to the Nepali Communist Party, which is currently the government in Kathmandu. The government is also coming to terms with the discovery of an enormous cache of high-quality uranium in the Mustang region, which borders in Nepal and China. If the US money comes with the US military presence, this will create a serious flashpoint in the Himalayas. We've already seen Indian and Chinese troops clash in the Leh Ladakh area, the high mountains of the Himalayas. We've seen Indian and Chinese troops come to very near conflict in the northeast of India. If the United States puts pressure on Nepal, this will create further developments in a negative direction for Asia. Unable to outspend the Chinese, the US government is making a rhetorical argument that it has more respect for transparency, human rights, and democratic values than China, which the US says practices repression at home and abroad. These quotes are from a US document called a free and open Indo-Pacific. Reading documents such as these requires fortitude. They are plainly rhetorical and nonsensical. It's hard to imagine the United States being transparent with its trade deals. It's hard to imagine the United States 
being free with countries when we know that it imposes pressure on countries in order to push its own agenda. In May 2018, the US military command was renamed the Indo-Pacific Command. This is a much more clear identification of US policy. The most recent Indo-Pacific Command document is called Regain the Advantage. It comes alongside new hypersonic cruise missiles. The United States, in other words, through its rhetoric, through building up military force and new military technologies, seeks to impose a war on Asia. It is interesting that in all the documents released by the US government and in all the speeches, there is no discussion of the strategy of the US government and its allies in how to contain China. What you have is rhetoric that skates into extremely belligerent territory. We say no war, no conventional war, but also no hybrid war, no war on China. We want peace in Eurasia, peace in the waters around Asia. Thank you very much. Thank you, Vijay, for those insightful and incisive observations, drawing attention to the Quad and the Indo-Pacific Command. You're listening to Essential Descent. This is the first of two episodes consisting of audio from a webinar entitled No to the New Cold War. We just heard from Wang Wen, Executive Dean of the Changyang Institute for Financial Studies, Renmin University, followed by Vijay Prashad, Executive Director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research. Now back to moderator Jenny Clegg, who will introduce the next speaker. We now have a speaker joining us from Grey Zone. Grey Zone was founded in 2015 to shine a journalistic light on America's state of perpetual war and its dangerous domestic repercussions. Max Blumenthal is an award-winning journalist. Max, the floor is yours. Thanks to everyone who organized this really important initiative. I want to talk about the role of the media in driving this new Cold War that we find ourselves in, uh, and specifically U.S. corporate media, but also the role of the U.S. government in driving the narrative of the U.S. media. And, you know, it was really ironic this week to see, as the Chinese consulate was forcibly closed by the U.S. government in Houston without any apparent provocation, any incident at least, to provoke it, Senator Marco Rubio, who heads the de facto anti-China commission within Congress, the Executive Commission on China, declare his justification for closing the consulate, which was that it was a base of spying. This is always the, the seeming justification these days. And I found it ironic, considering not only the dearth of evidence for this claim, but what had recently been revealed about the protests in Hong Kong since the passage of the national security law, it's been revealed that the U.S. Agency for Global Media, which oversees Radio Free Asia and the Voice of America, the main U.S. government broadcasting agencies abroad, had contributed $2 million to the protests, including supplying logistics and secure communications equipment through its open source initiative to protesters. And as we know, these were not exactly peaceful protests. In many cases, they made what's happening in Portland look like a Shriners parade. $2 million from the U.S. media organization to destabilize 
Chinese territory. Can we imagine the U.S. response if Xinhua or CGTN was supplying communications equipment and money, direct money, rapid payouts, as the U.S. did to protesters, so-called Antifa protesters in Portland? It would be the biggest escalation we've seen of U.S.-China relations in decades, probably since the Korean War and the way the U.S. would react. But this is exactly what the U.S. did in Hong Kong. We've recently seen protest leaders of these supposedly organic grassroots protests like Nathan Lau and Joshua Wong hanging out with Mike Pompeo as they go into exile and begin to lead growing anti-China lobby from London to Washington. And what we did at the gray zone as soon as these protests broke out was to expose these relationships between the U.S. government and the protest leaders. This is consistent with our work throughout the years to really probe the micro-sociopolitical relationship between the U.S. and opposition groups in countries where the U.S. seeks regime change. And someone who's been really helpful in this effort with regard to the new Cold War on China is Ajit Singh, who's helped organize this discussion. Ajit has done so so many important reports for us at the Gray Zone on the institutions inside the U.S. driving this new Cold War and forming the corporate media narrative of hostility. You know, for me, I really started reporting on this at a meeting in Congress on Capitol Hill where a who's who of congressional leaders from both parties were present at a National Endowment for Democracy ceremony honoring North Korean dissidents, many of the people who were quoted about Korea in U.S. media. And it was there that I met someone named Omer Kanat, who is the head of the World Uyghur Congress in this hall inside the U.S. Capitol. You know, media was all around this character, and I wanted to know who he was, and I wanted to speak to him. And I realized that he was the head of a multi-million dollar dissident lobbying group, the World Uyghur Congress, a very right-wing anti-communist organization funded entirely by the U.S. government, very similar to the Cuban American National Foundation or groups that Juan Guaido and his white-collar mafia are trying to form in Washington that are dedicated simply to regime change and providing quotes to U.S. media. I immediately got into a conversation with Omar Kanat about a narrative that was forming at that time in 2018 about millions of Uyghurs in so-called concentration camps in the Xinjiang region of Western China. And I asked him where the sources came from for these staggering numbers. And he told me that indeed the World Uyghur Congress funded by the U.S. government was supplying many of these testimonies and so-called sources to U.S. media. But I asked, where, where, who are your sources? Where do they come from? And Omar Khanat said, well, our sources are Western media and some testimonies we get. So he basically was describing a feedback loop where it was impossible to get to the bottom of these numbers, which are reported as fact, to portray China as a new Nazi Germany in mainstream U.S. media and now on the floor of Congress where sanctions bills have been passed on the basis of these so-called concentration camps probing deeper with the help of Ajit Singh, we found two sources, absolutely only two sources 
for these claims of millions of Uyghurs in concentration camps. The first was someone named Adrian Zentz, someone who thinks a lot like Mike Pompeo and has about as much expertise in the Chinese language and Chinese politics and society as Mike Pompeo, the stooge of the Koch brothers from Kansas does. Adrian Zentz laid out his worldview in a 2010 book called Worthy to Escape, Why All Believers Will Not Be Raptured Before the Tribulation. Indeed, Adrian Zentz is an evangelical right-wing fanatic who has declared that he is on a mission from God to topple the Chinese Communist Party, which he views as a satanic communist entity. And in his book, he has argued for scriptural spanking or corporal punishment. He has called diversity and homosexuality a satanic plot. And yet Zentz is called upon as a key expert in U.S. media on issues ranging from repression of Uyghurs in Xinjiang to supposed forced labor of Uyghurs in Xinjiang. And we've shown that his methodology is shoddy. It all boils down to a few testimonies from a handful of characters in partisan Uyghur media. The other source is Chinese human rights defenders, which again is funded by the U.S. government, is a dissident organization based in Washington, and which actually is based in the same office as Human Rights Watch, and which relied in its study on testimonies from a grand total of eight Uyghurs from Xinjiang, and which extrapolated the population of the villages that those eight people inhabited into the total of anywhere between 250,000 and 1 million Uyghurs in concentration camps. So the point here is that when you look at these numbers and you go to the source, there's no there there. We need to have more evidence. And when you look at how these sources are quoted, whether it's figures from the World Uyghur Congress or Adrian Zentz, Chinese human rights defenders, there is no background in U.S. media or context on what they actually believe or the fact that the United States government has incubated these organizations and is funding them. It's the same for the stories we constantly hear about forced labor in Xinjiang. The sources boil down to primarily the Australian Strategy and Policy Institute, which is funded by the U.S. State Department, the British Foreign Office, and the arms industry, and the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, which is funded by the same exact elements, the arms industry, the U.S. State Department, and other foreign governments. So, uh, you know, in closing, I just wanted to get some of these details out there. You know, it's really dismaying for us at the gray zone, we're we're a left-wing site, to see other left-wing media organizations like Jacobin, Democracy Now!, The Nation, relay these U.S. government astroturf claims. They are absolutely unquestioned in respectable liberal left media. And to question them actually crosses an invisible red line where you put your career as a journalist in the U.S. today at risk in the name of trivialities like the truth and global cooperation. As Vijay previously mentioned, Vijay Prashad previously mentioned, we are witnessing a hybrid war. And one of the key aspects of hybrid war is information warfare. Information warfare fundamentally corrupts journalism. It transforms correspondents and reporters into frontline soldiers in this hostile Cold War. And so while policies may shift, if executive power transfers to the Democrats in November and January, 
this hostile narrative and astroturfing will continue. So it's our job to provide the context and to provide an alternative to this hostile media narrative. You've been listening to Essential Descent. I'm Wilton Vaught, producer and host of the series. This was the first of two episodes consisting of audio from a webinar entitled No to the New Cold War. The organizers described the webinar as an international meeting in opposition to the U.S.-led New Cold War on China. You can find their website at nocoldwar.org. The speaker you just heard was Max Blumenthal of The Gray Zone. You can find Essential Descent on YouTube, Facebook, and iTunes, and you can download the audio for free via radioforall.net. That's radio, the number four, all.net. Thanks for listening. Thank you.